Welcome back to the Energy Today podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Roos, and let's get into it. So first, I want to discuss what's going on in oil prices like we always do, and then jump into the climate change net zero debate um, over what's kind of coming out of that over in the U.S., China, as well as India. So WTI, again, West Texas Intermediate, it's actually a futures contract. Um, it's our main gauge here for oil here in the U.S. Uh, so that's currently at $61 per barrel. And it's been pretty sideways over the past few weeks, actually, um, after OPEC announced that they were going to increase production. It's pretty much stayed in this price range for some time, which stability is always a good thing in the oil market. We've seen a ton of instability in a lot of aspects uh just in general, but more specifically in the oil market over the past year or so. So this is a good thing. Uh, I like where this is at, particular, particularly because if we were to see oil go $70 plus, which again, if you're a producer, that's the money that you're going to make, right? So if you're drilling more wells and making more barrels of oil and sending that to market, well, more price, you're going to make more money. So there's more incentive to drill more. So if we saw that price range tick above that seventy dollar price rate price range, which we almost saw um, around that March timeframe of twenty twenty one, we'd see a lot of production come online, and ultimately we'd go back into this rising production. Things are good for a little while, and then too much production because again you can't really help yourself if you're making more money, right? And then we'd see another fall in prices, cutting back, people be laid off, all of those things, and that's just the nature of the energy industry. Um, and if you're going into the industry, it's one thing that you have to be comfortable with. Um, most producers at the moment can turn a profit, even in this price environment. ConocoPhillips, for example, has a cost of supply around $30 per barrel. So that's clearly a good thing at the moment. And even whenever oil prices were going from $30, $40, $50 per barrel, they were still able to make money, especially whenever they acquired Contra resources. Um, so just something, a little, a little note there next looking at rig counts. So as of April 23rd, the rig counts here in the U S are sitting at 438, which is actually down one from the week before and 27 from a year ago and not trying to beat a dead horse, but I keep on mentioning how year ago comparisons are a little bit tricky at this point, because remember a year ago, um, life was much, much different even to now. Um, and especially pre-pandemic. So that's still down 27 from a year ago. And Texas actually showed a decrease in rig counts of three. Um, Again, Texas and New Mexico share the Permian Basin. So there was also an increase in the New Mexico side of things of one. And I do definitely consider a decrease in three rig counts uh, here in Texas to be a good thing, especially as we roll into the month of May. Um, can't believe it's almost May now. It feels, feels like the semester for me just started. Um, but starting in May, OPEC is going to bring a lot more production back online. I believe it's around 350,000 barrels. I'm I'm not quite sure exactly the the figure there, but they're definitely going to be increasing production. So if, for example, we were to see a run up in, in oil and rig counts here in Texas, then you combine that with more production internationally coming out of OPEC and Saudi Arabia and those guys, um, that necessarily wouldn't be a good thing. And I was really hoping to see a, a decline in rate counts. I was pretty excited whenever I saw that. Um, so moving on to inventories, uh, inventories here in the U.S., again, it's kind of, you could think of it like the supply side of the equation, right? If we have a lot of 
oil sitting in inventories, well, someone is waiting to sell that at some point, right? So that being a really high number isn't a good thing. Being a really low number could be a good thing for oil prices in the short term, but then you might see, like I touched on earlier, low inventories, people want to run up the number and start producing more to be at more of a healthy balance. And again, could lead to a lot of other other problems. So inventories over the past week actually increased by 600,000 barrels from the prior week. Um, And total inventories are currently at around 1% above the five-year average. So again, more of a fair comparison there because it's a five-year average as opposed to a one-year average. Um, And this is a really important indicator to be looking at. There's a million things that could impact the price of oil. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that these three or four that I'm talking about are are the only things. Um, But increases in inventory and in supply were partially responsible for the oil price crash last April, whenever Saudi Arabia and Russia decided to open up the floodgates on oil. You could think of that that as a run-up in inventories. Not in the U.S. This is discussing more specifically the U.S. inventories, but even internationally, because because oil is such a globally connected commodity that there's no real silos here, right? Like there's nothing that can happen in the U.S. that's not going to impact the EU or or the Middle East or Russia or China uh, and vice versa. So next, looking at OPEC, um, they're incredibly important in the oil market. What they say and do really matters and is watched very, very closely. So they actually have a meeting on April 28th, so this Wednesday, right? And like I spoke on our prior episodes, I touched on it a lot more. Um, so I'm not going to go into many details here, but we're unlikely to see any changes to their production targets because, again, they had a bunch of cuts to su- to support the price of oil because a lot of those economies in OPEC are very dependent on the price of oil to fund their economy, right? So they took off supply off the market, and now two meetings ago, they decided to increase the production and that's going to go into effect from the time periods from May to July. Um, and of course, once we get through that time period, there will probably be more changes, changes, which I'll definitely have to, uh, have to talk about on the show then. Um, but they would either need to see a really serious deterioration in oil demand or a serious improvement to change what they're already sitting at. So I can't really see a lot of what's going to come out of that meeting to really impact oil prices. I'll talk about it on the next show, whatever happens. I didn't expect them to raise production uh, two meetings ago, but hey, um, that's just life. You can't really predict the unpredictable. Um, And also OPEC looks at way more indicators than I could ever do. Um, And if those are saying that, hey, we need to change things, then they're going to do that. Um, For example, if they saw inventories in Saudi Arabia run up or run down, right, that could be something that that uh, could change their outlook and i really can't stress enough how important the developments out of opec are for the u.s oil industry uh and oil prices i like to think of it almost like a marriage right like it might not be (laughs) between the u.s oil industry and opec it might not be a a great thing but at the end of the day um what they say and do matters and we have to listen to it and monitor it so now like i mentioned earlier i want to talk about probably one of the most widely discussed topics in the news and also especially in the oil industry, and that is the topic of reducing emissions. And I'm going to focus on China, uh, the U.S., as well as India. And 
the big focus around reducing emissions, and it's really had some legs over the past few years. Um, the ESG story has really gotten too big to ignore at this point. So the, the big thing here is that developed countries like the U.S., like China is getting to, um, like EU countries, people or countries that have been around for a while that have been using um, natural resources to fuel their economies and growth and all those things are wanting to shift away because there's consensus that 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 increasing or using natural resources as a fuel source is increasing carbon dioxide emissions around the world and, and leading to um, global warming. And I'm not going to get into the whole global warming debate. I'm just saying that it's a big, um, it's a big topic that's really shaping a lot of actions coming from the entire world's governments and, and industry leaders and all of those things. Um, but what this has caused is it's caused um, like the Biden administration, right? They ran partially on changing or uh, confronting climate change and rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, which they did. Um, but it's important with anything in life not to go so far, right? It, we've got to walk this fine line of, yes, we want to reduce emissions, but let's not punish oil and gas companies or employees or users of of natural resources for doing that because in all honesty the oil and gas industry and the companies and the banks and all these things that lend to these companies they're going to be the ones that are leading the change like i've spoke before oil and gas companies aren't going to say hey you know what let's just go out of business let's declare chapter 11 bankruptcy um and that'll be that some of the smartest people i know work in the energy industry um and and they're really pushing for change and and in a lot of different ways. And you can't go in with that attitude, right? You can't go in with the attitude that we're going to make oil and gas companies hurt just so we can have a renewable future, right? That's not a good thing. So it's important to be really thoughtful and tactful on, on how we approach this topic. So again, oil and gas is in everything. Um, hydrocarbons are in everything. And it'll be interesting to see how this energy mix changes um, going forward. So the article that I'm referencing here, I found it on the Wall Street Journal. It's called Global Emissions Goals Comes with Big Cost and Political Hurdles. So it's really at the crux of this whole argument of, okay, yeah, we know this is a problem, but how are we going to get there, right? I mean, we can't we can't agree on really anything these days, right? And so how are we going to coordinate across the whole world to get to this point? So that's what this article is really about. And it focuses on the U.S., India, and China. The EU, um, the European Union, all of those countries over there in Europe, um, they're figuring things out. They've, they're have they pretty on, much on the same page um, with how they want to handle the future. And that's, of course, a good thing. Unity is always a good thing. Um, but much of the changes that many think need to be made are going to come out of those three countries that I just listed. U.S., India, and China. So China is the second biggest economy in the world, right behind the U.S., but they're also number one in, in emissions and pollution. And right behind them is India, right? And you got to think about where these countries are at in their history, right? India is still a developing country. They're getting there. China is, of course, a, a developed country, but they're still heavily reliant on coal and dirtier burning fuels, right? So just this article discusses on how expensive it will be to become, quote, net zero, right? So that you emit 
emit pollutions and then you also either take out the same amount of pollutions through carbon capture technology or carbon credits which i talked about on on prior episodes um but not only how expensive how expensive this will be from a monetary perspective but also political and behavior implications i mean so many things will have to change so many industries will have to change in at least a little bit to make this thing happen right from tech to shipping to to steel to the oil and gas industry to real estate all of these things are going to have to change and behaviors are going to change and proponents of this argument of reducing emissions say say that these changes will lead to innovation jobs lives saved because of better air quality and ensuring water levels don't overtake coastal cities like a Galveston or a, or a Friendswood run from or, or Houston, for example. Um, so I want to read a few quotes real quick that I really just kind of say it better than I, than I really could. So quote, the international labor organization said in 2018 that the green transition would destroy 6 million jobs, but create 24 million new ones worldwide by 2030. And it's often thought, this is so end of the quote there, this is me, me talking now. So it's often thought that the energy transition will ruin jobs, it'll put people on the streets. Um, but because of how innovative things are going to have to be, specifically in the Houston area, right? Like that's going to be where the things are, where, where the, the action is going to be happening. While people will likely be laid off and, and cuts in, in labor forces, BP shed a bunch of their exploration production team. But those people are experts in their field, right? So it's going to create new jobs in the in the in the green world, the green transition that are going to that are going to be obviously good for them, but they'll also be able to make make a real change in the energy industry. So next quote is quote the International Renewable Energy Agency, an intergovernmental organization based in Abu Dhabi, said in March that the world would need to invest $115 trillion, $115 trillion, right? Through 2050 in clean technologies, such as uh, solar power, electric vehicles, to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. So again, where they're getting those, those degrees numbers is from the Paris Climate Accord, and it's a goal set back in uh, 2015 that the Trump administration left and the Biden administration later rejoined. Um, and I don't know how they got to this figure. I'm sure there's plenty of scientists that figured it out, but if we, I guess if we've reduced by that amount of time, by that, um, degree figure by 2050, then I suppose water won't overtake cities or, or something along those lines. I don't really know a lot about the specifics on that, but if you think about that dollar figure, I mean, $115 trillion, uh, with the T. So, the amount of coordination and effort and changes that are going to have to happen, it's it's beyond comprehension. I mean, we can't even agree on if the weather is nice today. So I, I do hope that we can get there, um, but it'll be interesting to see how this plays out going forward. And the article claims that much of the outcome on if net zero or reducing uh, emissions and, and saving off climate change rests on the shoulders of China and India. Like I mentioned earlier, both of these countries rely really extensively on coal and coal consumption. And as many know, coal is one of the dirtiest fuel sources from an emissions standpoint. 
right? So then relying on this and using that as growth isn't necessarily a good thing from carbon or from an emissions perspective. Um, and people die every year from air pollution in India by burning fuel sources that aren't coal just so they can heat their homes or be able to read at night, those kinds of things. Um, and China, for example, has to invest $21 trillion over 30 years to reach their net zero goal by 2060. So the U.S. has a net zero goal by 2050. China has one by 2060. Um, and again, I think of two or three episodes ago, I talked about how China has brought online the most coal capacity last year by any country in the world. And it wasn't even close. Number two, I believe number two is the U.S., but not the point. It, it, it was a pretty big gap from from number one to number two. Um, so it's interesting seeing that the mouth is saying something while the legs are moving the other way, right? I mean, you turn on the news and you see some sort of new pledge by by a country to, by China to do this or that, and then you see the most coal capacity uh, come online, right? And I'm not bearish on China or, or China's climate goals. I'm just stating what they're actually doing versus what it, what is being said. And I think that's the hardest thing to, and the, one of the main reasons why I started this show is because college students like myself see an article, read it, okay, that makes sense, and don't really dig into it a little bit and see, okay, is this actually what's going on? And it's made me a little bit more skeptical um, of a lot of things, but I try and keep a balance uh, with healthy skepticism, right? So they've made many pledges as of late, I mean, really too many to name, to move towards a renewable future. President Xi Jinping said, for example, that he wants to double wind and solar capacity by 2030. And solar solar power, solar panels, all those things are really one of the biggest, um, one of the, China makes the most, of them. I don't know how else to say it, they make the most of them. The battery, you know, you hear about battery technologies and all those things, China produces much of that and that, and that capacity there. So thinking through an example of hopefully not will ever happen, but a war with China, right? And if they make the most of the battery technologies and all of these things, um, even the semiconductor shortage, I mean, they make the most of them, right? Um, so anyways, it's just something to, something to think about there. But thinking about either of these countries, you really can't blame them for using coal. Thinking about India, for example, it'd be, it's easy for me to sit here in college station or sitting at a Whataburger in Waco, Texas, and say, how could they do that? How could they use this coal? It's ruining the environment. But not every country is on the same playing field. We, we live here in the U.S., thankfully, in the number one country in the world with everything at our disposal. I mean, there's nothing you can't go do or see or use, especially for energy usage. I mean, whenever the... Whenever the um, blackout to Texas in the snow. I mean, he thought the world was ending, right? And that's some people's reality every single day. Um, and it'll take some time for countries like a China or an India to wean off of it. And you can draw some corollaries to here in the U.S. is just where we are in our history. So everyone in the U.S., well, not everybody, but people are saying that natural gas, a uh, cleaner burning fuel source is going to be the bridge to our clean future. Um and coal is going to be that bridge for India and China to their clean future, right? It's, it's not an apples to apples comparison there. So just something to think about there. And my other thought here is that you can sit there and you can make the debate and you can say, I want a, a net zero or a clean future for my kids. I mean, I certainly do, right? 
But will you be willing to pay more to fly, to buy gas, or to you know any sort of pet- uh, petroleum product? Will you be willing to put your money where your mouth is because of the higher cost currently associated with using um, some green en- energy sources? At some point, it will certainly be economical to buy green products. I actually talked about this with my brother. Um, that's not the case in the short term, right? I mean, from my perspective as a college student, I would not be willing to pay more for a flight because it was using a cleaner fuel source than, than whatever it is that we already had, uh, the jet fuel in the plane, right? Um, something to consider. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be argumentative, but that's a really real, real life, uh, real feeling example of that. And flipping that over onto the U.S. side of things, um, like I mentioned, the Biden administration kind of ran on, on that on that clean future, right? So they have a they set a goal for lowering lowering emissions by as much as fifty two percent by twenty thirty, and to ultimately get to net zero by twenty fifty. And almost every single government head that has a hand in the energy uh, energy industry, whether it be the EPA or, or anything like that, has made it clear that they're very clean energy focused and. Because we don't have central government planning like a China, and we have a very fractured energy industry compared to China, it will fall more on companies um, like a ConocoPhillips, like a Next Era, um, to make that change, right? And one thing that a lot of people don't know is that most countries in the world, if you own the land on top of it, you don't own the mineral rights to the oil or whatever it is below it. So, like if I was in the UK, for example, and I had 100 acres of land, I couldn't sell that mineral rights to an oil and gas company. The government owns that. But here in the U.S., the, the property owners or the landowners do own that. So, again, much more fractured there. And also, I mean, you can't look at anything online on the news and not see increasing government sway and increases in power and all of those things. And and pushing in on incentives to move towards renewables. Um, but again, things need to shift gradually. We can't punish oil and gas companies because they are the ones that are going to lead the change. People in the industry are incredibly smart um, in all of those things and very innovative innovative cultures. And also you got to think about the political implications here and really the, dis- the, the divisiveness in Congress. Right, you have people that run the whole gamut on where they sit on the energy transition and all of these things. So that's why in the article title it says the political, political capital, political implications. Whatever it said, um, there's going to be a, have to be a lot of at least general agreement, and you can't scold somebody or or say that they don't know what they're talking about if they believe a certain way about the energy transition or or climate change or anything like that. Um, which will certainly be a challenge to overcome that the U.S. will have to kind of look in the face and, and go from there. So the crux of the, oh, this is a longer episode, but, but the, I'm, getting, I'm getting to a point here. So the crux, the central point of the net zero debate is that many don't realize that it will not happen tomorrow. And that was one of my big motivations for starting the show is that I realized that there's a lot of misconceptions about the industry. And you see a news article with a senator saying that climate change is an existential threat, which may be true, but then they fly on a private jet or ride in a suburban. So the, the hypocrisy is, is always interesting to see, especially whenever you can recognize it. And my thought process here is, 
while yes, this is something that's very important and that we must tackle to to remain a strong economy and world, um, but I can think of many more pressing issues that we could tackle at the moment, such as poverty, homelessness, childcare, better hospitals, etc. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't invest money into this and make this happen, but it's kind of the the short term versus long term long term debate. So something to keep in mind whenever you're formulating your own opinion on this. I'm not here to change your opinion. I'm just letting you know mine and shedding some light on it. And and again, the energy industry will be a very unique mix going forward. It will always be oscillating from one side to another. And renewables will never fully replace oil and gas. And I stand by that. But renewables will slowly increase its share of the energy mix. And that will always be changing. And oil is vital to not only in our economy, but in global politics, and that will never change. Um, got a little preachy there for a minute, <laughs> um, but I would encourage you to check out that Wall Street Journal article. I'll put it in the show notes, and it's really fascinating stuff. And, and as always, I'll put the other links in the show notes um, for you to check out. And another one that I found on oilprice.com that would be um, really interesting to read about. That's all that I have for you um, here on the Energy Today podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Roos, and I hope you have a great week.